0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.
1: Professor Kennedy is a professor in the uh, History Department, and he is uh, the Donald J. McLaughlin Professor of History. Um, He is one of the world's leading authorities on um, U.S. history, Uh, and I think, as many of you also know, is the author of as it's always characterized, the magisterial freedom from fear, the American people in depression and war. Uh, it is truly a magisterial work. It's a delight to read. and You don't have to take it from me. You can take it from the, um, um, the folks who uh, allocate Pul- Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, the, the topic of his remarks today is does the United States have a mercenary army? Without further ado, Professor David Kennedy. Oh, I also have to say, excuse me, um, some of you may s- see me slip out the back and it's not uh, because I am uninterested in the topic, it's because I've heard it twice and it was in fact because it so impressed me that I s- suggested it to the symposium organizers, so I didn't want anyone to draw the wrong conclusion if you see me slip out. Professor Kennedy.
2: Thanks, Chip, and uh, thanks to all of you for being here. Uh, The title of uh, these remarks is accurately reported, as does the United States have a mercenary army? Uh, A somewhat more responsible title might be, although it makes for a crummy headline, is, does the United States have an army of such a nature that the political leadership is tempted to treat it as if it were a mercenary force? As I say, that's a much more accurately descriptive title, but not one that uh, you can easily print in the brochure. I'm going to talk mostly about the, uh, the force structure that the United States now commands and the role of technology in shaping that force, since that's the overall theme of this gathering. But I just want to put you on notice here at the outset that, though structure and technology will figure prominently in what follows here, my deeper subjects are three. The first and the most important in my judgment is the subject of political accountability and the two other topics that I will touch on are social equity and social comedy. Now the premise of these remarks is this, that the United States today has configured its armed forces in a fashion that gives those forces many of the attributes of a mercenary army. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that term and offer an historical account of how that force came into being. But most importantly, as I said just a moment ago, I want to explore some of the political as well as the moral and what I will call, for want of a better word, the psychological implications that the uh, existence of a force with these characteristics poses for American society. I want to acknowledge at the outset that many people have found it and maybe in this room will find it offensive to describe this country's military forces as having any of the characteristics of a mercenary army. So I want to emphasize here with as much clarity as I can muster that my use of that term is in no way intended as a criticism of those currently serving in uniform. My own belief is that the profession of arms can be a noble calling and I harbor no disrespect for those who follow it. Their motives for being in the military are not my concern here, though as I will try to get to at the end of these remarks, their demographic profile does suggest some issues to which I will return under the headings of equity and comedy. But my principal interest on this occasion is to undertake not a psychological or a sociological analysis of today's surface personnel, personnel, but I want to emphasize instead some structural matters about the relation of the military we now have to the conduct of American foreign policy and particularly to the important matter of political accountability. Now, the fact remains, however, that for all my disclaimers, some people have taken the use of the word mercenary as fighting words, no pun intentional. So I will have something to say about a bit of a fight that my use of these terms did uh, provoke a few months back and what that dust-up, what that dust-up suggests about the current state of American culture, including the implications for institutions of higher education. My Random House Dictionary defines mercenary as, quote, working or acting merely for money or other reward hired to serve in a foreign army. <clears throat> now, I don't want to be understood as suggesting <coughs> that American service personnel today work merely for money. Though, in fact, recent recruiting campaigns for the all-volunteer force lay a lot of stress on wages and benefits and signing bonuses. And, indeed, uh, we have some 70,000 non-citizens currently in the active forces, which uh, prompted the Bush administration in 2002 to expedite expedite naturalization procedures for aliens in the military by severely reducing residency requirements. In any case, I say all this simply by way of recognizing that mercenary is a term that carries a lot of negative freight. So I'd like to unburden the word of as much of that freight as I can and focus on its core meaning, which is rooted in the Latin term from which the word mercenary comes, mercari, to trade or to exchange. So what are the terms of trade between our civil society in this country today and the military organization that fights in our name and on our behalf? And what role has technology played in defining those terms? What is the relation of service to citizenship and of our current force structure to political decision-making? Now our forebears had a ready answer to those questions uh, from the time of the Ancient Greeks through the American Revolutionary War and indeed well down into the mid-20th century, the obligation to bear arms and the privileges of citizenship were intimately linked. In republics from Aristotle's Athens to Machiavelli's Florence to Thomas Jefferson's Virginia and beyond, to be a full citizen was to stand ready to shoulder arms, indeed in many cases in the ancient world to provide one's own arms at one's own expense. And it was their respect for the political consequences of that link between service and citizenship that was among the principal reasons why the American founders were so committed to militias and so worried about standing armies, which Samuel Adams, for one, warned, were always dangerous to the liberties of the people. African Americans understood that linkage in the Civil War and again in World Wars I and II when they demanded combat roles as a means to advance their claims to full citizenship rights. So for more than two millennia, the tradition of the citizen soldier has served the indispensable purposes of strengthening civic engagement, promoting promoting individual liberty, and perhaps most notably, again I come back to this note, of encouraging political accountability. Now today, that tradition in this society has been seriously compromised. No American is now obligated to military service. Few will actually ever serve in uniform. Even fewer still will taste battle. And fewer still of those who do serve will have ever sat in the classrooms of a university like this one. Now a comparison with a prior generation's uh, war can I think help us to understand the scale and suggest both the novelty and the gravity of this situation. In World War II, The United States took some 16 million men and several thousand women into service, the great majority of them draftees. And what's more, and a point of non-trivial importance, uh, this society mobilized the economic and social and psychological resources of the society down to the last factory and rail car and classroom and victory garden. World War II was and is justifiably known as a total war. It compelled the participation Of all citizens, it exacted the last full measure of devotion from 405,399 of them in uniform, and required an enormous commitment of the society's energies to secure the ultimate victory. Today's military, in contrast, numbers just 1.4 million active duty personnel, with another nearly 900,000 in the reserves, in a country whose population has more than doubled since the conclusion of World War II. And proportionate to population, today's active duty military force is about 4% of the size of the force that fought and won World War II. And what's more, and again, in a parallel point of non-trivial importance, in the behemoth $13 trillion economy that is now the American economy, the total military budget, even allowing for the supplemental uh, appropriations just passed, sort of, by the Congress uh, last week, is a little over $500 billion, is still less than 4% of gross domestic product. That's about a little bit shy of one-third of the rate of military expenditure relative to GDP at the height of the Cold War. In World War II, that rate, that is the claim of the military on the overall resources of the society, was a little better than 40%. So between that time and this, we've seen a tenfold reduction in the claim of the military on the society's overall resources. And yet, this relatively small and relatively inexpensive force is at the same time by far the most potent military establishment the world has ever seen. So I say relatively inexpensive advisedly, because the absolute numbers tell a different story. By some responsible estimates, American defense expenditures, even at around 4% of GDP, are greater than the sum of all other nations' military budgets combined, a calculation that testifies as much to the scale of the American economy as it does to the role of the military in America's conception of its security needs and foreign policy priorities. So the American military, in short, today is at one and the same time exceptionally lean and extraordinarily lethal. It displays what might be called a compound asymmetry far larger and far more destructive or larger in its destructive capacity than any potential rival force and somewhat paradoxically far smaller with respect to the American population and economy than at any time since the 1930s. And technology, as I'll get to in a moment, goes a long way to explaining how this development came about. Now, the implications of this, what I'm calling this compound asymmetry, the relation of America's military to the rest of the world's military, and the relation of the American military to the internal nature of American society, the implications of this asymmetry or this pair of asymmetries I think are unsettling. What this means in effect is that history's most potent military force, the most potent ever seen, can now be sent into battle in the name of a society that scarcely breaks a sweat when it does so. The United States today can wage war while putting at risk very few of its sons and daughters and only those who go willingly into harm's way. And unlike virtually all previous societies in history that have made war, the United States today can inflict prodigious damage on others while not appreciably disrupting its own civilian economy. So we have, in short, evolved an unprecedented and uniquely American method of warfare that neither asks nor requires any large-scale personal or material contributions from the citizens on whose behalf that force is deployed. Now, some people celebrate these developments as triumphs of the soldierly art or as testimony to American wealth and know-how and technological accomplishment. But there's another side to this story, too. Among other things, the present structure of civil-military relations constitutes a standing temptation to the kind of military adventurism that the founders feared was among the greatest dangers of standing armies, a danger embodied in their day in the career of Napoleon Bonaparte, whom Thomas Jefferson described as, quote, having transferred the destinies of the republic from the civil to the military arm. But Napoleon, at least, in his time had somehow to sustain a broad public consensus to support the levee en masse and the huge drafts on economic resources that made his adventures possible. So Napoleon might well have envied a 21st century leader who shared his own transformative ambitions and who commanded a compact, low-cost, highly effective force that substantially liberated him from the constraints of available manpower and finite materiel that so frustrated the Emperor Napoleon's ambitions eventually to remake the world. Okay, that's the situation. How did it come about? And here now comes the history lesson. The ultimate origins of this story no doubt trace back to the most uh, primeval efforts to gain advantages of weaponry or wealth over one's adversaries at the least possible cost. But in this case, the the more proximate causes of the situation I've just described uh, lie in the Vietnam era. In 1968, as many people in this room will recollect, presidential candidate Richard Nixon sought to dampen the rising tide of anti-Vietnam War protests by pledging to end the draft, which was the focal point of much campus disruption and a formative factor in the lives of millions of American youths through several decades of the Cold War. When he came into office, therefore, Nixon deputized or, or ordered his defense secretary, Melvin Laird, Uh, to undertake the study of an all-volunteer force. Laird commissioned his predecessor in the Eisenhower administration, Thomas Gates, to study the feasibility of ending conscription. And in 1973, the Selective Service System stopped drafting young men and the United States adopted the all-volunteer force that we have today. And with the wind down of the Vietnam War, at approximately the same time, that force also became smaller, shrinking from 40 to just 16 Army divisions by the time Nixon left office in 1974. Again, by way of comparison, the Army fielded 90 divisions in World War II. Today's Army numbers 18 divisions, 10 active, and 8 reserve, down from 28 divisions at the time of the first Gulf War. Now, Vietnam's influence on the size and composition of the armed forces and on the structure of civil-military relations does not end here. The last Army Chief of Staff to serve under Nixon, General Creighton Abrams, a veteran of both World uh, World War II and the Vietnam War, was among those members of the Vietnam-era officer corps who were deeply disillusioned by the way the military had been used or, in their view, misused in the Vietnam episode. So to prevent what he, Abrams, regarded as uh, the possibility of repeating the mistake of Vietnam, Abrams devised something called the Total Force Doctrine, capital T, capital F, capital D, Total Force Doctrine, which became the regnant basis for organizing and configuring the force structure of the American military from the 1970s forward. Now, part of the logic of the Total Force Doctrine grew out of budgetary constraints in the 1970s but its deepest logic was so to structure the armed forces that they could not easily be deployed for a long duration in the absence of strong and sustainable public support, something that Abrams and his fellow officers thought had gone fatally missing in Vietnam. Now, the means that Abrams employed to that end was actually artfully, quite artfully simple. It was simply to undertake in the uh, the, the, the warfighting doctrines that were evolved in the composition of the armed forces, a tight integration of the active and reserve components, so that a long-term, large-scale deployment under this doctrine became impossible without activating their reserves. Now, the reserves, of course, were less expensive; they are less ma- expensive to maintain than active forces. But to repeat, the, the the configuring the overall force so that it was inevitably dependent on the reserves served principally, in Abrams' mind, a political purpose. The reserves are traditionally composed of somewhat older men with deeper roots and responsibilities in civil society than the typical 18-year-old draftee of the World War II and Vietnam eras. And Abrams' hope was that with this total force structure in place, political leaders would hesitate to undertake a major deployment that would necessarily be highly disruptive to countless communities unless they were absolutely sure of solid and durable public support. So in effect, the Abrams Doctrine uh, was intended to raise the threshold for presidential demonstration of a genuine threat to national security and to require presidential cultivation of a broad consensus on the nature and urgency of the threat as a prerequisite for large-scale and long-term military deployment. The Abrams Doctrine has been criticized in some quarters uh, as a kind of extra constitutional restraint on the President's freedom of action as Commander-in-Chief. And in fact, in that vein, the Total Force Doctrine, evolved by Abrams in 1973 and shortly thereafter, had a legislative counterpart that will be familiar to many of you, which is the War Powers Act of 1973, also aimed at restricting the President's ability to commit troops and passed, not incidentally, over Richard Nixon's veto. And the constitutionality of the War Powers Act has been explicitly or implicitly denied by every president since. Now underlying the War Powers Act in turn, and we've heard a lot about this in the last several weeks, is the constitutional provision, Article 1, Section 8, Paragraph 11, giving Congress the power to declare war. And here it might be noted, uh, not altogether incidentally, that in the 200 and some years of the republic's history, Congress has exercised that constitutional power only five times. You can play a little parlor game with your friends and associates if you like, of what were the five occasions in which the United States Congress formally declared war. And I'll give you the answer. It's uh, War of 1812, the Mexican War, Spanish-American War, and World Wars I and II. Five times, Okay. Every time, incidentally, or not so incidentally, at the president's request. So only five de- formal declarations of war in two centuries plus of history. And yet we know, and if you don't have to take my word for it, there's a U.S. Navy website you can go to and look this up. The Navy is actually calculating this. There are 200 and some odd instances in which the United States has deployed forces overseas. So five out of the 200 and whatever it is, 260 or 270, are actually formally declared wars. Those numbers all by themselves, just as a first order pass at this general question, suggest to us that theres we're in the presence here of some kind of fairly chronically deficient constitutional mechanism for ensuring that democratic procedures really inform the decision to use military force. Okay, the force shaped by Abrams' uh, doctrine persisted, in some ways it's persisted almost down to the present, persisted into the early years of the Reagan presidency when Defense Secretary, then Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger, took the total force doctrine logic of insulating the military from ill-considered political decisions several steps further. And the precipitating factor in this instance was not Vietnam, but Lebanon, where the Reagan administration had sent troops over the objections of the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs. And again, as many of you will remember, on October 23, 1983, some 241 Marines died in a suicide attack on their Beirut barracks. And it was in reaction to that catastrophe the following month that Weinberger laid down what became known as the Weinberger Doctrine. And these were, these were six principles that, in his view, ever after were to govern the decision to deploy American troops. And here they are in all their simplicity. One. The United States should not commit forces to combat unless the vital national interests of the United States or its allies are involved. These are not rocket science. They're very elementary propositions. Two, U.S. troops should only be committed wholeheartedly and with the clear intention of winning. Otherwise, troops should not be committed. Three, U.S. combat troops should be committed only with clearly defined political and military objectives and with the capacity to accomplish those objectives. Four, the relationship between the objectives and the size and composition of the forces committed should be continually reassessed and adjusted if necessary. Five, and this is the one that interests me most, U.S. troops should not be committed to battle without a reasonable assurance of the support of U.S. public opinion and Congress. And six, the commitment of U.S. troops should be considered only as a last resort. Now, seven years later, in the context of the uh, first uh, Gulf War, uh, then-chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Colin Powell, glossed the Weinberger Doctrine, which he may well have had a hand in writing, I'm told, and managed thereby to substitute his own name for Weinberger's in popular understanding of America's uh, overarching military doctrines. We now, the Powell Doctrine has become a kind of a household term. Uh, And Powell achieved this by adding a couple of things to the Uh, basic Weinberger uh, doctrine. He added the notion of overwhelming force, don't go to battle until you have overwhelming force and are sure of victory because of the application of that force, and that you have an exit strategy for the withdrawal of the force once committed. Now, like Abrams, Powell was a Vietnam veteran, and like Abrams, uh, uh, pardon me, like Weinberger, uh, uh, Powell invoked the Beirut Marine disaster, the bombing of that barracks, when he announced the Powell Doctrine. And in the speech in which he announced it, he said the following, we must not send military forces into a crisis with an unclear mission they cannot accomplish, such as we did when we sent the Marines into Lebanon in 1983. We inserted those proud warriors into the middle of a five-faction civil war, complete with terrorists, hostage-takers, and a dozen spies in every camp, and said, gentlemen, be a buffer. The results were 241 dead Marines and Navy personnel killed and US withdrawal from the troubled area. <clears throat> so contrary to many stereotypes uh, about the bloodthirstiness of a so-called warrior class, these various doctrines, the Abrams Total Force Doctrine, the Weinberger Doctrine, the Powell Doctrine, all of them, have they share the characteristic of seeking primarily not to provide rationales for doing battle, but instead they were principally intended as formulas, need I remind you, devised and supported by professional soldiers for avoiding war, if at all possible, or only in the most unambiguous cases and only as a last resort. So like the total force doctrine that preceded and informed them, the Weinberger doctrine and the Powell doctrine alike grew out of persistent anxiety on the part of of senior military commanders that they lived in a world where it was far too easy for their political masters to behave irresponsibly, even recklessly, by committing the armed forces to action in the absence of clearly compelling reasons, a well-defined mission, and the reliable and properly informed approval of the citizenry. These were, in short, councils of prudence and responsibility and caution intended to induce caution and consensus building when confronting the decision to make war. So how effective have all those doctrines been? Well, opinions might well differ even in this room about that matter. But here we get to the part of the story where technology plays a very conspicuous role. Because overlaying or intercepting or overtaking the logic of the uh, uh, Abrams and Weinberger and Powell doctrines Uh, has been a technological development uh, dated essentially from the 1990s. It has its origins in the 1980s, as I'll explain in a moment. (laughs) That, in in fact, uh, weakened the already frail and even somewhat desperate structural inhibitions that the military were trying to put in place uh, to check against and guard against rash or imprudent political decisions to resort to military force. That intervening technological event usually goes by the name of the RMA or the revolution in military affairs. Now, to be sure, there have been many revolutions in military affairs in the history of the world, from the introduction of gunpowder in the Middle Ages and the stirrup to make possible a mounted fighter, uh, to the levee en masse that Napoleon introduced, to the 20th century's invention of blitzkrieg and strategic bombing and the advent of nuclear weapons. All of these things fundamentally redefine strategic as well as tactical doctrines and the very character of warfare. But this newest RMA is notable for the speed with which it has worked its effects, for its intimate relation to parallel developments in civil society, and I think, frankly, for the lack of public understanding of its implications. This RMA, the one I'm talking about here this afternoon, was foreshadowed in the 1980s in the writings of Albert Wallstetter. Uh, long a very influential theorist of war, particularly nuclear war, uh, who in a series of articles in the 1980s stressed the factor of accuracy in determining force composition and weapon system design and warfighting doctrine. As early as 1983, he proposed that a tenfold improvement in accuracy was roughly equivalent to a thousandfold increase in sheer explosive power. And the implications of that calculus were energetically pursued in the Pentagon Office of Net Assessment, uh, run by a man named Andrew Marshall in the 1980s and early 1990s. And Marshall promoted a broad program of capitalizing militarily on the information and computer revolutions that were so rapidly and pervasively transforming the civilian sector, especially impressive advances in uh, VLSI, very large-scale integration technologies, many of them developed right here in Silicon Valley. And specifically, those persons interested in applying those technologies to military uses stressed the potential for developing stealth and standoff weapons, uh, all-weather weapons, all-terrain fighting capacities, unmanned systems like the Predator, space-based joint force integration, miniaturization, range, endurance, speed, and above all, precision. And all of those innovations were on spectacular display in the early stages of the 2003 Iraq War and in Afghanistan, though they have manifestly proved far less relevant to the task of occupation and nation building uh, that have followed the conventional mission accomplished military victory. The first fruits of the, this incipient uh, embryonic RMA were evident actually as early as 1991 in the first Gulf War. Uh, and again, many of you in this room will remember that news coverage conspicuously at that time featured the advent of smart standoff air-launched weapons. Uh, but historians who've studied that war have all, I have in mind in particular Andrew Basovich at uh, Boston University, have already concluded that the first Gulf War is best understood as having been fought uh, as a kind of final mission by a force that had been configured to fight a fairly conventional land battle against Warsaw Pact adversaries in Central Europe. The fact is that smart bombs, so-called, accounted for only about 10% of the ordnance used in that 1991 conflict. And the decisive action, we now believe, was General Norman Schwarzkopf's blitzkrieg-like flanking tactics against the Iraqi army, a classic World War II-era maneuver mimicking the German run around the Maginot line or Patton's Great Sweep to Argentin in August of 1944. But by the time of the Second Gulf War in 2003, smart munitions, so-called, made up something approaching 90% of the American arsenal. In the space of a little more than a decade, that, uh, that wep- those weapon systems had gone from about 10% of the arsenal to about 90%. So the implications of accuracy as a force multiplier proved, in fact, to be spectacular. And here's a calculation that puts that matter into some focus. According to the strategic bombing survey conducted at the end of World War II, on average in the European theater in World War II, it took 108 aircraft, 108 different sorties, dropping 648 bombs to destroy a single target. During the 2001 campaign in Afghanistan, which was the first large-scale demonstration of this new logic of this latest RMA, on one single night, 38 aircraft destroyed 159 targets. Again, the contrast with World War II is absolutely spectacular. Exponential rate of effectiveness thanks to the uh, the development of the factor of precision in these weapon systems. So in short, this RMA vastly amplified the firepower and the fighting effectiveness of the individual soldier, sailor, or airman, making it thereby far more feasible to field a much smaller force capable of wreaking much greater destruction than the lumbering, civilian-drafted, terrain-bound, and largely sightless armies that had clashed on countless battlefields since time immemorial. So several developments converged here, political, fiscal, and I think especially technological, to yield this downsized, affordable, and remarkably efficient military establishment that we now have. Now, to repeat what I said a moment ago, many observers applaud these developments, especially the all-volunteer force and the wizardry and wonder of the RMA, as triumphs of American skill and ingenuity. And so perhaps, indeed, they are. But these developments may have also incubated a grave threat to the no less important values of political accountability and responsible decision-making that Creighton Abrams and Caspar Weinberger and Colin Powell were trying to nurture. The RMA has, in a sense, made possible the substantial undermining of the logic of the total force doctrine by underwriting the downsizing of the armed forces to such a degree that only the willing or the desperate need serve and even the call-up of the reserves does not have an appreciable impact on civilian society. Now, I believe that this can't be healthy for a democracy to let something as important as war-making grow so far removed from broad popular participation and strict political accountability. That's why the war-making power was constitutionally located in the legislative branch in the first place. Our current situation, it seems to me, makes some very important things way too easy, like the violent coercion of other societies, and more broadly, the resort to military solutions on the assumption that they will be swifter and more cheaply bought and more conclusive than what could be accomplished by the more tedious and often vexatious processes of diplomacy. The life of a democratic society, one might argue, should be strenuous. It should make demands on its citizens when they're asked to engage with issues of life and death. Now, to be sure, the RMA has made obsolete the kind of huge citizen army that fought in World War II. To bring back that army would be to serve no useful purpose whatsoever, militarily or otherwise. But I suggest to you that we are in need of some mechanism whatever it might be, to ensure that the civilian and military sectors do not become dangerously separate spheres, and to ensure that this society commits its military forces only after due del- deliberation and democratic assent." Now, a final word here, if I can just take a couple of minutes, and it won't be more than that, about the separation of the civilian and military spheres, and here I pass to the matters of social equity and social comedy. Andrew Basevich, who I mentioned earlier, military historian at Boston University, reported that in the year 2000, so we're seven years on, the data are a little out of date, but I don't believe that the situation is materially different today. But in the year 2000, when his data uh, came from, minorities, ethnic and racial minorities, composed 42% of the Army's enlistments. That's way disproportionate to their presence in the general population. And here's a parallel number. While 46% of the comparable 18 to 24-year-old age cohort in the general population, 46% had at least some college education, in that same 18 to 24-year-old cohort, which is the bulk of the enlisted ranks in the Army, only 6.5% of those young people had ever seen the inside of a college classroom. So not only is today's military remarkably small in relation to the overall structure and scale of civil society. It is a minority institution in that sense. It's also a minority institution in another sense. It's composed disproportionately of racial and ethnic and economic minorities. And whoever they are and for whatever reasons they enlist, and I'm not impugning their motives here at all, but whoever they are, they surely do not make up the kind of citizen army that we fielded two generations ago or even a statistical approximation thereof its members drawn from all ranks of society without background, without respect to background or privilege or education, and mobilized on a scale that civilian society's deep and durable consent to the shaping and use of that force was necessary. So here is another compound asymmetry of, to me at least, worrisome proportions. A hugely preponderant majority of Americans with no risk whatsoever of exposure to military service, has, in effect, hired some of the least advantaged of their fellow countrymen to do some of their most dangerous business while the majority goes on with its own affairs unbloodied and undistracted. That, it seems to me, raises some serious questions of social equity. Final word about comedy. When I published a version of these remarks, a much briefer version, in the uh, New York Times, an op-ed piece uh, a little over a year ago, I heard from a lot of those countrymen of ours as well as their friends and relatives. Most of them were deeply offended by my use of the word mercenary, and to be honest, in retrospect, I wished I had more carefully defined the way I was using it uh, with reference to the general argument about civil-military relations and especially political accountability. But the New York Times only gives you 800 words, and you can't do much qualifying. But what was most disturbing to me as I read the hundreds of messages that the piece elicited was how absolutely and sourly and bitterly marinated they were in the vernacular of absolutely venomous cultural resentment. In comments that were, what should I say, colorfully embroidered (coughs) with vivid anatomical and scatological detail, they castigated, not just my use of the term mercenary and, and, and my patriotism, they castigated the educated classes, the securely employed, the presumptively effete professoriate as well as an array of elite and supposedly clueless institutions like the New York Times itself and the major universities, especially those universities like Stanford, and my correspondents knew these facts, that universities that do not have academically accredited ROTC programs and resist allowing military recruiters on campus. I might say parenthetically that those policies, including at this university, go a long way toward ensuring that universities like this one, which pride themselves on training the next generation's leaders, will have minimal influence on the leadership of a hugely important American institution, the United States Armed Forces. And I don't understand why that's thought to be a good idea. Now, it would be a gross exaggeration to suggest that the cultural divide registered in those reactions uh, to my piece is the precursor to the emergence of an American Freikorps Corps, or Fasci di Combattimento, the veterans organizations after World War I that provided the basis for the rise of Nazism in Germany and fascism in Italy. But the cultural distance that increasingly and rancorously divides those who serve from those who do not, and at the same time insulates some of our greatest universities from the officer corps. Those matters, it seems to me, undoubtedly exacerbate the cultural tensions that already threaten our social comedy, And it is one more reason to worry about the longer-term implications of maintaining an all-volunteer force, not to mention banning ROTC. I'll stop there, and I believe we have a few minutes for some questions before the next panel. Yes. I guess you have to wait for the mic
0: there. Uh, I'm Len Weiss. I'm a, uh, a science fellow here at CSAC. Uh, first, let me say that uh, a, a similar experience to yours was uh, experienced by William Arkin, who runs a, uh, writes a blog for the was- on the Washington Post website, where he, in a column, referred to American soldiers in Iraq as mercenaries. And he was forced to apologize because of the large number of protests that came into the paper. But uh, the question I want to ask is this. Uh, the, uh, the Powell, the, the Abrams, the Weinberger doctrines are all executive branch uh, attempts to reach some kind of uh, consensus on when soldiers ought to be, American forces ought to be deployed. And you didn't say much about Congress except when you discussed the, uh, the War Powers Resolution. Now, uh, there's a reason, I mean, the question then is why doesn't Congress play a role in seeking accountability of some kind uh, before forces are deployed? And it seems to me that the the revolution in military affairs has been accompanied also by a revolution in communications in the United States in which the 24 hour a day, uh, seven day a week propaganda machine of one aspect of, the, of our political culture uh, puts pressure on the newspapers, on the Congress to adopt a point of view which is commensurate with what the executive branch happens to want at a particular time, especially this executive branch. Can you comment on that, please?
2: Is that mine? <laughs> it's possible. No. Um, well, if, first of all, I think you're absolutely right that what you said just at the end there, I think that the the executive branch, the White House in particular, has huge advantages in dominating the news cycle and thus framing the, uh, the terms of debate for whatever the issue might be. And once an issue is framed in the media, it's very difficult to bust the frame and tell a different kind of story. And then there, underlying that, of course, they're, they're the natural deep psychological reflexes that we all have to rally around the commander, whoever it might be, and the tribal leader or whatever in time of stress and so on. This is, this is all embedded pretty deeply in our DNA. So there, there are natural advantages, it seems to me, particularly at the outset of a conflict with the party that argues this is necessary and urgent and it is unpatriotic to question those premises. So that, that, the story gets framed that way in the media and the national political discourse. And it's very, very difficult to change it. The Vietnam War is an example where the discourse changed, but it took years for that to evolve. And to this day, uh, those who eventually prevailed in getting the United States out of the war, there's still a little cloud of illegitimacy that hangs over them in some quarters. So this is an old story, and it's probably as old as the history of human societies that have gone to war. Uh, but So I don't, I don't find that particularly surprising. It makes the task of redefining the, the discourse more difficult. Congress, uh, I think, uh, taught itself some lessons and taught all of us some lessons in the last month or so, when they tried to come to grips with what was the nature of their own constitutional power to take on, uh, they, 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 as the saying goes, they have the power of the purse that, that's given. But could they really use that power effectively to um, redirect the executive in the midst of a war? Well, in, in my humble opinion, what they've done in the legislation they're now setting up to the White House is nothing but a political gesture because it is a certainty that it will be vetoed. So the effective power of that action is about zero. Now whether they can come back with some modified version that does incline the administration a little more in their direction remains to be seen. But I think that Congress does not have, for these political and psychological reasons as well as constitutional reasons, does not have much of a a record in uh, restraining the executive once an operation is launched. It takes a big messy catastrophe, to finally uh, nurture the political will to do that. Yeah. I would have to know how such a relatively uh, uneducated uh, military force deal with such extremely sophisticated weaponry. <laughs> it's, it's a good question. Uh, and I, 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 the, the answer has to be with a lot of training, uh, with a lot of training that's given in the military itself to uh, to make the weapons operable. Uh, and it's, it's not it's not that they're deficient in IQ. (laughs) It's just that they come out of sectors of society where uh, disproportionately where they have not had a lot of educational opportunity up to that point. But indeed, I I haven't done this study and I'm not sure anyone has, but one could imagine a study that would track these same individuals going forward for five or ten years and you would probably find that many of them signed up in the military in the first place in order to get access eventually to higher education as in the GI Bill in World War II era and that they will in fact eventually take advantage of that and enter the ranks of the educated middle class. That's an entirely predictable result. But they uh, – although I I don't know that's going to be the case, but it's quite likely. But the fact is that they are now being – the military personnel today are being ladled out of sectors of our society where people have less choice and freedom of action than elsewhere.
0: I'm Paul Stockton at CSAC. I'm wondering if you could offer a few more thoughts on why the total force doctrine as a political construct proved to be an abject failure. I can understand why the revolution in military affairs may have weakened some constraints on the use of force, but why did we get it so wrong, those of us who believe that if you build a military that's dependent on calling up civilian soldiers, that somehow that won't provide a break on the use of force, why did that turn out to be totally wrong, at least in retrospect?
2: Well, I'm not sure it was totally wrong. I'd say two things. I mean, there, there was a, what, uh, roughly two-decade period in there when, in fact, no large-scale long-term deployment was undertaken. So, now, that, that's overdetermined. There are a lot of reasons why that didn't happen, but we might assign some fraction of the explanation or the responsibility for that to the, the fact that the total force doctrine was in place. Uh, But, but of course, the the political leadership chafed against the logic of the total force doctrine from the outset. So they're aided and abetted in their capacity to evade it by the implications of the RMA, which allows for the the radical downsizing of the force, uh, to the point where you only have eight reserve divisions in any case, and even summoning all those into service. Uh, this doesn't uh, deeply enough disrupt the, um, uh, the civil society at large. It does in certain communities, to be sure, but that doesn't add up to a sufficiently nationwide political force to amount to much. Uh, I learned from a speaker that was here at CSAC just recently, Tom Shanker from the New York Times, that in fact, uh, the among the, and I'm sure this is no news to many of you, but the, one of the priorities of the Rumsfeld uh, regime at the Pentagon was to undertake something called rebalancing, which is to reconfigure the forces so they're less dependent on even even the minimal de- dependence on the reserves that is now in place is reduced to near zero. So again, there's, there are elements in the political leadership that understand the constraining effect of this and are, uh, are looking for ways to uh, to avoid it. Thank you, Pavel Podvik at CSAC here. Uh, you, you seem to suggest that actually, uh, whatever the problem is, the solution is to uh, increase the accountability of the and the link between the military and the society. Uh, but I would suggest uh, a, a, an alternative. Uh, you could actually rethink the role of the military in national security, and in fact, there there are there are, there is evidence that that role may not be that that large because, uh, as you mentioned, the, uh, the American military was very good in defeating uh, Iraqi's army, but that didn't solve any problems really. So that's maybe the solution is just the, to let the military be the military it is, uh, but to put it in a totally different, uh, different framework. Well, you seem to be pointing toward the uh, the basic message of a book that I just started reading over the weekend, actually, uh, by Rupert Smith, The Utility of Force. Do you happen to know it? He's a British general. But th- th- I haven't finished it, so this is a little bit premature. But he seems to be pointing in exactly this direction, that we've reached a point in history where the utility of these uh, great uh, formal military structures that we've evolved, particularly he, he begins his analysis essentially with Napoleon and then uh, Clausewitz and on from there. Uh, that we we we, we that, that those kinds of armies have played out their historical logic, and the use of the, the useful force in the future is going to be a very different kind. And it remains to be seen. Then it's going to be uh, it's, it's going to be designed for war among the people, is the way he puts it, anti-guerrilla war, anti-counterinsurgency warfare, and so on. This is by itself not great news. I mean, it's not not altogether novel. Uh, but it remains to be seen if, in fact, we evolve a military force charged and configured and composed for those kinds of missions, what will be the relevant sorts of political constraints that need to be built into that? uh, My core concern is the matter of political accountability. I don't have the silver bullet or the magic wand to wave here that is going to give it to us. When I'm pressed for this, I think that insofar as we were thinking within the framework of a more or less traditional military force. That, to repeat what I said a moment ago, we don't need and we could not use, it would be silly to even dream about uh, a, a universal draft and what would be in World War II proportions about a 32 million man army today. I mean, What would we do with it and what damage would that do to the civilian economy if we extracted them from the workforce? So that, that's clearly a non-starter. But something like a, a lottery system with universal liability to service, understanding that only some would be actually summoned, but that might be... That would be a step in the direction of engaging the interest of the larger society. If more people were at least potentially liable to service, even it being understood that most would not have to serve. Yes, sir. Um, Ray, I'll get you next.
0: Henry Bloom, alumnus, also Korean War veteran and retired reservist. <coughs> For those of us who believe the intervention in Kosovo was a good thing, intervention in Rwanda might have been a good thing. And, Darfur should be considered, how does that fit your themes of the Abrams Doctrine, the Powell Doctrine, the Weinberger Doctrine, and some of these things that seem to be in the context of a very big war?
2: Well, you said that I think, the relevant thing there at the end. All of those interventions, both the ones that have happened and the ones that are possibly in prospect, as in Darfur, do not have, at least in very substantial measure, the characteristics or the properties of being large-scale and long-term deployments. I mean, the the various doctrines that I talked about, Weinberger and uh, uh, Abrams and Powell, were all primarily cast in terms of uh, ensuring deep political consent to a deployment that was going to take years to be effective and that was going to engage a very significant part of the uh, civilian population in the armed forces and uh, a significant claim on the society's overall economic and material resource. So all, all of the things you've just mentioned are of a different sort. And again, I, I go back to my point a moment ago, I, I don't have the, uh, the answer to how we um, ensure good political accountability for interventions, uses of military force on that scale and in those kinds of circumstances, but I think it's something we need to think through. Maybe, Ray, one last question? Yeah, how about you? You can. Uh, let's take somebody... <laughs>
0: okay. uh, I, I appreciated your remarks about Vietnam and the um, certainly for our generation, this university, et cetera. But uh, I guess, as a historian, how do you think those lessons of political accountability for Vietnam are, in fact, being synthesized or realized as
2: we, it seems
0: to me, repeat identical mistakes of uh,
2: executive arrogance around the use of the military? Well, if anything, frankly, I think it's become worse, that the, I mean, b- bad as the Vietnam intervention was in terms of the political leadership's inability to make a plausible and convincing case that held civil consensus to it for, over the long term, that was bad enough. But it seems to me this one's even worse, uh, that the, the ostensible reasons for intervention turn out not to really have been taken all that seriously in the first place. Uh, the What appears to be the, the, the deeper logic of the intervention and the aspiration to create a model democracy and change the political equation in the entire region wasn't really offered conspicuously at all at the time of the, the origins of the intervention and had it been, I think, would have been quickly identified as a very, very difficult proposition, which is probably why it was withheld, frankly. Um, So I I, I think things have gotten worse. I think uh, for all the reasons that I said in my formal remarks and we've been discussing here, the capacity of the society at large to ensure that the political leadership's decision to resort to force is properly undertaken and duly justified is somewhat weaker than it was. And I'll share with you something I probably shouldn't, but I'll do it anyway. Uh, and I'll deny I ever said it, if any of you quote me. Um, so if the press is here, this, this, I, you didn't hear this, okay? <laughs> but I had a uh, the opportunity to sit down with uh, President Bush for a couple of hours in the Oval Office uh, about a year ago in the company of several other historians to have a discussion about the future of the world and how history would judge our time, which meant how it would judge him. Um, and in the course of this discussion, He was kind of musing, ruminating out loud. And he said, you know, if I'd had to go into Iraq with a draft army, I would have been impeached by now. QED. (laughs) But you didn't hear it here. (laughs) Okay, thank you very much.